Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. The monsters will now start attacking Tokyo. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. Sound. I'll turn up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the deck. One man speaks into a microphone, his voice joined by others, in reference to a television show, a show from an age long gone, but not forgotten. For the next 120 minutes, your ears will leave your body and you will witness episode 258 of the Kaiju Cast, a podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. And my name is Kyle, and this is the second episode of March 2019, and in this installment of the Kaiju Cast, we're turning our gaze to one of the genre's building blocks, Ultra Q. Now, if you've never seen Ultra Q, I can only hope that what you are going to hear in this episode is at least going to get you interested in checking it out. Additionally, I normally don't suggest people go back and listen to the really old episodes of the Kaiju Cast, but if you have not listened to episode 16 of the podcast, recorded way back in 2010, with my good friend August Ragoni, you've got to go back and listen to it. I will, of course, have a link in the show notes to that. Seriously, the amount of information about Ultra Q dropped in that episode is staggering. So let's consider this kind of like part two. I mean, it only took eight years. And let's listen to a little something I put together for our first musical break. Should this episode test how many times my subjects, I mean listeners, can handle hearing the Ultra Q theme song in one program. It came to the earth out of the blue one peaceful afternoon. From where and for what reason did it come? For the next half hour, you will witness one of the most unusual events ever seen. there won't be a similar gift from outer space. And next time, the unwelcome gift may not be put away so easily. It may take advantage of seawater and grow bigger. Now, Ultra Q's origin story is fascinating and covered pretty much in full in episode 16, but let's touch on the basics and sort of work that into how we've been doing our Daikaiju rediscussions lately. First, I love the evolution of this series concept. It was first sold to Fuji TV as Woo, a series of three 13-episode seasons about a cosmic cloud with eyes that comes to Earth while traveling the galaxy. 
Wu explores Earth and is attacked by the military, but finds a sympathetic team of humans from an arts center, a photographer, his teenage assistant, and one of their hot models. Wu would then act as mankind's protector with monsters and aliens serving as the series' antagonist. Things seem to be on track for Wu and Tsuburaya Productions and Fuji TV until Eiji Tsuburaya actually went to New York and fell in love with the Oxbury 1200 forehead optical printer. You see, after using Toho's Oxbury 3-head on films like Matango, Tsuburaya decided he needed to use this top-of-the-line optical printer for his new company. And Toho did not want to pay the 40 million yen, and neither did Fuji TV, who ended up dropping the show completely. Luckily for The Old Man, which is the nickname everybody had for Eiji Tsuburaya, Tokyo Broadcasting System wanted to produce a new epic television show for one of their top broadcast slots, and they were ready to foot the bill for that printer and bring this new production to their facility, giving Eiji Tsuburaya full access to it. However, despite all of the work that was put into producing or pre-producing Wu, meaning concept work, design work, scripts, and even like a series Bible, TBS decided that Wu would be too expensive and actually asked for an entirely new concept. And so, Eiji Tsuburaya tasked screenwriter Tetsuo Kinjo with concepting this new series, and Kinjo came up with Unbalance, a series looking at man's tampering with the universe and the chaos that is caused therein. The core ensemble were tweaked and are now a scientific investigation crew consisting of 25-year-old Manjome, who owned a flying supercar, teenage sidekick and muscle nicknamed Tiger, and Manjome's 19-year-old girlfriend, Yuriko. Also, Dr. Ichinotani was created both to be the team's science advisor, but he would also bookend each episode with Rod Serling as commentary. Kinjo had also come up with three story treatments for the show that would need to be fine-tuned in the coming months, Mammoth Flower, Metamorphosis, and Vengeance of the Giant Octopus. Subaraya's screenwriting team got started right away on building the foundation for Unbalanced, which was supposed to air in 1965, but when TBS was able to sort of pre-sell the show to America's CBS television, more episodes were ordered and changes were required of the production team making the show more cosmopolitan and less Japanese. You know, stuff that might turn off Western viewers. Give it more monsters and less hard sci-fi that, again, might turn off viewers. During some early publicity for the show, it was determined to strike the name, and the show title was changed from Unbalanced to Ultra something. You see, Ultra had become somewhat of a catchphrase when the Japanese gymnast Yukio Endo won several gold medals with his Ultra C maneuver in the 1964 Olympics. Unbalanced was changed to Ultra. The letter Q was added potentially to represent question or quest. Apparently, Subaraya actually liked the English letter Q for that specifically. The Q was also used to tie Ultra Q into the other half-hour show in that 7 o'clock time slot, the manga-turned-anime Obake no Kutaro, or Little Ghost Taro, whose entertainment block was dubbed the QQ Hour, and Ultra Q premiered on TBS on January 2nd, 1966. The 28-episode series was shot in black and white on 35mm film and by Subaraya Productions, the production company of Eiji Subaraya, the special effects director who oversaw the effects for all of Toho's kaiju films until basically his death in 1970. And while Ultraman is what the world will remember from Tsuburaya, I think every kaiju fan and every Ultra fan should at least take a look at Ultra Q. 
It's easy to see why Ultra Q has been described as the Twilight Zone meets the X-Files with giant monsters. And the series does have some giant monsters, but some are also human-sized too. As I mentioned before, the show was sold to CBS television, but then in 1967, CBS apparently just dropped the show because everyone started doing color shows. The show was then sold to United Artists Television, who picked it up and created some advertisements for Ultra Q featuring the following monologue. The vast forces of nature apparently exist in harmony and balance. Then, one day, this order of things suddenly becomes turmoil. Strange, gigantic creatures rise through the Earth's crust in an earthquaking uproar. Sea monsters attack the shore on the crest of steaming tidal waves. Weird beings from outer space savage the Earth in a rage of inspired vandalism. All this comes before the camera in the most colorful array of special effects and optical illusions ever seen on TV. Here's fantasy made startlingly credible by realistic treatment of the unreal. Every program is a triumph of TV production and artistic ingenuity. Modern science versus champions of the age of dinosaurs. In Ultra Q, a new strange world bursts upon us. Cities topple, power plants disintegrate in a blaze of pyrotechnic fury, while populations flee as the weird creatures stamp and thrash across the land. Science comes to the rescue. A renowned scientist and his young friends, a girl news reporter and an airman challenge the destroyers. In feats of daring and inventiveness, they turn every defense and weapon known to science against the menaces. In this suspenseful battle for human survival, the climaxes every adventure. Now let's talk about who made this show. Of course, we will all associate Eiji Tsuburaya with Ultra Q and the rest of the shows produced while he was alive, but there are a number of people that actually brought Ultra Q to life. This information comes directly from August Ragoni's Ultra Q, The True Story, a bonus feature on the Shout Factory DVD release. Eiji Tsuburaya was listed as the supervising director, Noboru Tsuburaya was the producer, Toho's Koji Kajida, who had worked with Ishiro Honda since Godzilla, was the director, and Keiji Kawakami was pegged to helm visual effects. Now earlier, I mentioned screenwriter Tetsuo Kinjo, a young but mature writer who is the supervisor at Tsuburaya's planning and literary departments. He and a number of writers actually created the episodes, but Kinjo and Masahiro Yamada wrote the lion's share of Ultra Q. And in this broadcast, our episode here, we'll be focusing on the episodes written by Kataso Senzoku, Masahiro Yamada, and Tetsuo Kinjo. Now, the composer for Ultra Q was Kunio Miyauchi, who had actually scored The Human Vapor in 1960. He would also score Kaiju Busuka and the original Ultraman series for Tsuburaya, in addition to Mighty Jack's theme. Miyauchi would go on to score All Monsters Attack, a.k.a. Godzilla's Revenge, in 1969. Plus, he did the opening and closing titles for Spectre Man in 1971. Lots of stuff on that guy's resume. Now, the sound of Ultra Q is unique, and in my opinion, so is the look. That look was created by an artist named Tol Narita. I don't know too much about Narita, so I thought it would be kind of cool to ask a good friend of mine to come on the show. You've heard him before on the podcast. In fact, I've already mentioned his name in this episode. I've asked Eiji Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters author August Ragoni, to talk to us about the design aspect of Ultra Q. August, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about this guy, Tol Narita, and how influential he was on Ultra Q? Thank you, sir. Tol Narita was hired to design the monsters for Ultra Q by Eiji Tsuburaya. He had worked at Toho 
and a number of other studios. He started as an apprentice after graduating art school in the in the very early 50s and worked at Toho Studios. He went into the miniature department and he was responsible for building miniatures for the original Godzilla. Oh, cool. Uh, Rodan and uh, several other of the films during that early period and was working under Yasuyuki Noe, who, you know, designed the uh, the sets, the miniature sets. And he was part of uh, that crew. So he had an affiliation with Toho Studios and Eiji Tsuburaya at that point. Uh, he moved on as a freelancer once his, his contract was up at Toho. He uh, moved on as a freelancer and worked for uh, Toei and other studios. A little Mystery Science Theater 3000. He designed all the spacecraft for Invasion of the Neptune Men. Oh, crazy. I have heard yeah. about that movie. Obviously never seen it. Right. Well, you, sh- yeah. you should see it. In fact, I do a, a video introduction on the box set from Shout Factory. And I talk about the differences between the Japanese and the uh, the American version. There are a lot of differences between the two versions of the film. But Narita uh, designed the spaceship and the, the flying saucers and uh, the main character's flying car, his space car. And Narita worked on a bunch of stuff. And then, you know, around uh, 64, when they started producing Ultra Q, one of the original designers that came aboard when it was under a different title, Unbalance, and just before Unbalance, when they were developing Wu, mm-hmm. which changed into Ultra Q, which I'm sure you've already covered, was uh, Komatsuzaki, Shigeru Komatsuzaki. But uh, Narita was brought aboard to design uh, the monsters and also to design uh, other things for the show, including you know some of the miniatures and uh, or, or vehicles, things like uh, the Inazuma train. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and from the same episode, the new Tokyo train station, things like that. His style is very unique. I've got this art book in front of me. I've, I've picked up this Art of Tool Narita book from, I think, like a Kinakuniya bookstore. Yeah, which one did you get? Did you get the real thick one with, with Pigman on the cover? I did. That's the exact one I got, yeah. Right. And uh, he has like a handful of pages in here dedicated to the Ultra Q monsters. And I think maybe right. a couple of other things, too. But it's really interesting to see his style on screen and then to reference it later in book format, just because everything's a little bit different, you know, obviously 3d and the TV shows, but his designs are like just really otherworldly. Right. Well, he sort of came out of that school in the, uh, in that part of the, uh, you know, post-war, well, even before post-war, well, there was the, you know, Art Nouveau movement. There was, uh, you know, Dadaism and uh, Surrealism. And it's really interesting that both Tol Narita and the guy who actually made the monster suits, uh, Ryusaka Takayama, both were into uh, different mediums, you know, uh, illustration, painting and sculpture. And they were both really kind of came out of this whole Surrealism movement, which really added greatly to the designs for the shows that would ostensibly people would think were merely for children, but they had these, this design sense that stuck with viewers and the designs are still, I, I, you know, I hate when people say the designs still hold up today. The designs are completely timeless in a way. So they're always going to look cool. Indeed. Timeless and cool. I mean, the guy designed Kanagon, the guy designed, right. Pigmon, the guy designed yeah. like all of the all of the kaiju that you think of from Ultra Q that have lived on, with the exception of Gomez. Like 
Narita designed like all of those. Oh, absolutely. Because they also, you know, are still making toys, brand new toys or, you know, reissues of toys that like, like Bandai's Ultra Kaiju line, you know, that uh, they still, you could still go buy an Ultra Q monster off the rack. You don't have to go to a specialty shop or, uh, you know, buy a garage kit, you know, or a high end toy for, for grown up boys. You know, little kids can still buy some of these monsters, you yeah. know, and certainly all the monsters from the original Ultraman, which Narita also designed. Narita came up with a concept for designing the monsters. And since the world in the in the Ultra Q series was originally titled Unbalance, up until when they were actually starting to shoot episodes, his design sense was going to be, well, Unbalance sort of symbolizes chaos. So he went to the Greek hypothesis of chaos as his basis for designing all the monsters. So that's why that there's a lot of sharp angles on some of the creatures and they're misshapen or exaggerated. And that was sort of his concept in designing every single monster was that these all represent the Greek hypothesis of chaos. And uh, as he went into designing Ultraman, you know, he kept that idea, that concept of chaos, but then Ultraman would become the apothesis of cosmos. And in the Greek philosophy, that meant balance and harmony. Wow, that is awesome information. You know, somebody was thinking, you know, sometimes people go, oh, they made these TV shows and they just said, let's design some crazy thing and then make it and then we're going to film it. And, you know, but these guys were really like thinking about these things seriously. They were treating these things not like a throwaway children's show. And they weren't also thinking like, well, I'm going to make something that people will remember forever. You know, they were basically just doing the best job they could with what they were making. I'm going to approach this project with actual thought and, and some kind of philosophy behind it, which is a completely different approach than Ameri the American children's television approach. You know, shows like the first run of Ultraman shows, you know, Ultra Q and Ultraman, Ultra 7, those are made as, as not necessarily children's shows and not necessarily family entertainment, but they were made as entertainment for all audiences. When they were producing Ultra Q, the network TBS decided that they wanted to show some of these episodes before they, this is six months before they aired, right? Mm -hmm. Or long before they aired, they had a few episodes in the can and they did these things where they asked children to uh, come to this to the network to the studio that TBS Tokyo Broadcasting Service and they would screen episodes of Ultra Q and have the kids fill out survey cards right so test marketing nice right so they were doing these test marketing screenings but what they were trying to get an idea of what the children responded to the most uh -huh. and you know they had a couple of episodes that didn't have monsters you know and the kids would go oh that was cool right. But the ones with the monsters always got the highest mark. So TBS turned to Subaraya Productions and said, bring me a monster, like Mr. Taco. <laughs> Find me a monster. They said, just make more monsters. So there were scripts. There were, you know, teleplays for episodes that had nothing to do with monsters, and those got chucked. There was an episode called The Phantom Car that was supposed to be produced, and that got chucked because there was no monster in it. So all the kind of sci-fi ish episodes if they weren't already in the can if they were about to be shot or were in prep for shooting they chucked those and then had like they 
decided, well, let's use more. They had more scripts than they were going to shoot, you know. Uh-huh. They had a lot of ideas, and they had a lot of a lot of uh, temp scripts and a lot of pre- preliminary scripts, and uh, they that they could pull from. And so uh, the network said, "Make more monsters." So it wasn't really Super Eye Productions, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Call. Well, Narita was busy designing monsters for Ultraman in 1966. He also uh, was hired by Super Eye Design. Two big screen monsters for what was considered kind of an important film at the time for Tsuburaya and for Toho, which was a co-production with an American studio. And the name of that film, to cut it short, is The War of the Gargantuas. And Narita designed the titular Gargantuas, Sanda and Gaida. Um, In fact, they started out looking a little different than what they ended up being. Some of the art uh, has been published in some of the Narita books and a couple of the Toho books. And uh, like the first design of Gaida looks more like Ragon from Ultra Q or more like the creature from the Black Lagoon. We even with the dorsal fin on his back. And uh, that changed as, you know, they, they went through, I think, three or four design stages before he got the familiar gargantuas we know and love. So he was a busy man and designed a lot of iconic monsters. Yeah. You know, man, I think I didn't actually realize that I had seen Narita's drawings. For the gargantuas, I didn't even have any idea that that was his work, but that's incredible. Yeah, it just kind of blows people away when you, you, you're you looking at some piece of art and you don't realize it's the same guy that designed the guys from Ultraman. If you grew up with Ultraman and War of the Gargantuas, then you're like suddenly come to this epiphany that it's the same dude. <laughs> it's the same it's kind dude. of mind blowing. I have that oh, moment going on right now. Good, <laughs> good. That's perfect. You mentioned that he continued on to do other things, like obviously Ultraman and then uh, through Mighty Jack. I'm kind of wondering, right. like after Tsuburaya, what was his career like? Yeah, well, you know, he was a, uh, a painter and a fine artist. He worked on a bunch of television shows and movies for different companies. So, you know, Narita, in designing uh, Ultraman, he also designed a lot of the vehicles. Those went through, you know, different uh, design development stages and uh, all the monsters. And as he got into Ultra 7 and his workload increased, about halfway through the show, he had an understudy named uh, Noriyoshi Keita who took over the reins and designed all the aliens for the last half of Ultra 7. Uh, as I think that Narita was kind of ramping up his work, uh, prepping uh, Mighty Jack for Super Riot Productions. Ah. So like in the 70s, he started working you know, freelance uh, as he did before, but working for things like uh, Toho on a, on a superhero series called uh, Flying Saucer War Band Kid, designing the aliens for that. Uh, he was working for studios like Toei. They did a series of comedic trucker movies. You know, he worked <laughs> on those. He was working for different studios, like I said, like Toei, doing some special effects, did a movie, a big budget movie disaster film for Toei called uh, Super Express 109. I believe that was released in the United States on DVD as uh, The Bullet Train. It was a big, like, all-star disaster picture from Toei. And then he also worked on some Korean films, South Korean films in the, in the late 70s. Cool. You know, became like an art director, working on a lot of different uh, projects, worked on Tokyo Disneyland. No way. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, he worked on the Pirates of the Caribbean for Tokyo Disneyland, as well as some other stuff for the the amusement park. Then in the 80s, uh, you know, he, they had a revival of interest because of fans 
And he started doing a lot of new representations of his Ultra series work and stuff that he did for Subaraya for uh, lithographs and for, you know, VHS releases. He would do the covers, the jackets for those. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was revered. There's like his entire collection of art was given to the uh, Aoyama Art Museum, uh, where he was from in Aoyama, Japan. And uh, so a lot of it is on permanent display. Very cool. And some of it goes around the country sometimes for uh, various, um, you know, like Ultraman museum festivals or whatever that they do. Right. Totally. Oh, man, I got to catch one of those sometime. I think they were doing a lot of them around the time that, you know, we hit the uh, 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when they did the majority of them. Although I would recommend people going, if they're going to be in Japan, going all the way out to Aoyama. But checking with the museum first to see if they, you know, what they have on display. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for that information. Let's yeah. uh, let's end on a lighthearted note out of all of Narita's designs for the Ultra series. What is your favorite? Jeez. <laughs> That's a tall order, sir. It's not necessarily, you know, the design. It's the, the final piece, meaning the monster suit. Okay. You know, my favorite is Gomora from Ultraman. Fantastic. You know, I love a lot of them. There's they're so all like, many to love. All like old friends, but yeah. Well, August, thank you so much for helping shed some spotlight on this amazing artist, Tol Narita. And thank we're you. gonna go ahead and move along with the rest of our ultra coverage. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, I might actually keep that in there. I don't know. All right. <laughs> Thanks, August. Now, guys, we'll hear back from him in our Ultraman episode when we cover that next. Let's talk a little bit about the core cast in Ultra Q. We've already heard about how their characters were tweaked and tweaked and tweaked. And now here, this is what we're seeing in the Ultra Q cast. We've got Kenji Sahara as June, Jim in the U.S. dub. Now, born in 1932, Sahara first entered the scene when a high school friend actually saw an audition announcement in which a magazine called Heibon was searching for a new poster boy. He actually submitted an application for Sahara, and Sahara won. And what that meant is that he didn't have to go through the Toho entrance exams for their new face program. Now, by 1964, Kenji Sahara was already a very established actor at Toho Studios. As kaiju fans, you will recognize Kenji Sahara from many of his roles in the tokusatsu genre. Mainly, I would say his role as Shigeru in Rodan would be his best role, maybe what he's most known for, but that's me because I love Rodan. Anyway, Sahara was working in Hawaii on a film called None But the Brave with Frank Sinatra when Eiji Tsuburaya and Ishiro Honda flew to Hawaii to offer him the role Ultra Q. Basically, Honda said, Tsuburaya is going to make their own TV movies. It's got to work, so we need you to be on it. And of course, Tsuburaya asked him as well, and that was pretty much it. Kenji Sahara had to become Jun Manjome. Jun's girlfriend, Yuriko Edugawa, is played by Hiroko Sakurai. Hiroko Sakurai, unfortunately, does not have a ton of information about her online, but you would, of course, recognize her as science officer Akiko Fuji from Ultraman's Science Patrol. The third wheel in this formula is played by Yasuhiku Saijo, and the character's name is Ipe Togawa. He's also known as Happy in the English dub. Anyway, Saijo is one of those character actors from Toho, and you'd see him as, like, background in a lot of films. And anytime he gets in front of the camera, he's always doing funny stuff. Dr. Ichinotani is played by Urio Igawa. 
And Yoshifumi Tajima plays the editor at the Shinpo Daily. I love that guy. He's like one of my favorite Showa-era character actors. Let's talk about some of the familiar faces in these episodes, because a lot of Toho actors do appear. I've seen Yoshio Tsuchiya. I've seen Akiko Wakabayashi. I've seen Hiroshi Koizumi. I mean, basically, these episodes feature top-notch actors. Even some of the kaiju are familiar faces. We'll talk about Gomez in a little bit. But also, Sudar was the octopus used in the Showa-era kaiju films from Toho. The dragon in Grow Turtle is actually Manda repurposed. The gigantic monkey gorilla macaque Goro is supposed to be the old King Kong suit repurposed, which is pretty amazing. And some of these monsters sound familiar, too. I swear the Baragon Varan-style roar is used over and over again. But actually, Golgos, one of the monsters, definitely has Godzilla's roar at one point. Now, I sort of feel like I've done my due diligence on getting the information to you, the listener, about Ultra Q. So let's go ahead and get some of our co-hosts in here for the time being. Actually, what we'll do first is let me tell you what we've done. We're not going to cover all 28 episodes of this, even though this series deserves the deep dive of one episode per episode or one to two episodes per Kaiju Cast episode, whatever. We're not doing that. There's just not enough time. So what we've done is we've chosen two episodes each to cover. And when I say we, that is me, Gretchen, and Derek from Monster Kid Radio. Now let's listen to a tiny track by Kunio Miyauchi from Ultra Q, and then we'll get right into that discussion. Joining me here in the studio to talk about one of my favorite TV shows of all time, we have Gretchen Brooks. Hey. And special guest. And I guess this is our finally, we're, we're tying in our Kaiju cast versus Monster Kid Radio. Man. <laughs> Derek Cook is here. Hey, what's up, man? Finally made it happen, even though it's kind of sort of not, yeah, you know. <laughs> You know, we can make it happen. We yeah. can make it happen. Anyway, I brought these guys over here to watch some Ultra Q episodes. And actually, we have been talking about Ultra Q all month long, not on the podcast, but just sort of between ourselves, yeah. because this show is so iconic and so much of what I would call a cornerstone of tokusatsu that we have to talk about it. We have to give this show its due. Now, if you have not listened to it, even though I probably have already said this in the episode uh, you should absolutely listen to the episode I did with August Ragone from 2010, and uh, I'll have a link in the show notes to that episode, because basically, August and I covered um, Ultra Q 
a long, 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 long time ago, eight years ago, I believe Derek said earlier. And if you want to know anything about the development or the building of Ultra Q, that's the episode that has everything in it, pretty much. So make sure if you're listening to this conversation that we're having, that you have a little bit of knowledge, you know, up your sleeve, I guess you'd say, so that you can have some Ultra Q-isms in your own, you can answer your own ultra questions, I guess I should say. <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and talk about our, let's talk about the cast, actually. Let's go ahead and talk about the cast. So our cast is a regular group of people in this 28-episode series. We have June, played by Kenji Sahara. For the listeners out there who have not seen Ultra Q, Kenji Sahara has been in a ton of Godzilla movies, lots of tokusatsu stuff from Toho. Uh, he is the lead in Rodan. That's sort of what I would showcase as his best role. Uh, he's also in um, King Kong versus Godzilla as the guy who develops the super strong twine or wire that can <laughs> pick Kong up later on. Anyway, that's Kenji Sahara. He is a staple of giant Japanese monster movies. He's actually even in Godzilla Final Wars. Uh, next up, we have Hiroko Sakurai as Yuriko Edogawa. Yuriko uh, or sorry, Hiroko Sakurai is the one we always associate with Fuji from Ultraman. I think that's where most people know her from. One of the cool things about Hiroko Sakurai, though, is not only did she appear in Ultra Q and Ultraman and then several Ultraman shows later on, she has also taken on Ultraman as like part of her life. And so she's like part of this group that keeps Ultraman like alive with fans and stuff like no that. Kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Very cool. Uh, and then uh, last but not least of the trio is Yasuhiko Saijo, who plays Ipe. And if you watch the uh, the English dub, actually, because we talked about in the last episode or not in the last episode, but in the episode with August, we talk about how all the episodes have been dubbed, but we have never seen them really. There is like episode three that you can find on YouTube. And uh, so we watched a little bit of it. But in the dub, June is known as Jim. Oh, yep. <laughs> the part we watched, I didn't realize his name was Jim. But if you think funny. about it, right? Like, why not? You call, well, if you call someone June in America, you would think it's J-U-N-E. Oh, good point. And yeah. it would be a woman's name. Ah. So they call him Jim. And then they also call, instead of him being Ipe, it's Happy. No kidding. No kidding. They call him happy. Yeah. That anyway. fits. Somehow that fits. Poor man. But Yuriko stays Yuriko. <laughs> anyway, there are a few more characters in Ultra Q that I thought we should just talk about. Uh, Ureo Igawa plays Dr. Ichinotani, who is uh, a, an anime character come to life, basically. <laughs> I love his mustache. Super curly Q oh, mustache. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say that. Yeah, the mustache is... It should have its own credit. Yeah, I actually do think that that is almost kind of like a manga anime trope. Totally. Yeah. The um, scientist Coke bottle glasses. Yeah. Overly, and I, like, I love that they yeah. have a scientist uh, right. on their staff, I guess, or, you know. <laughs> yeah, wherever they yeah. work. Yeah. Well, I mean, these three. Okay, so it's weird, right? So the, you've got June mm -hmm. and you've got uh, Yuriko and they clearly work for the Mainichi News, right? Right. So they're clearly on assignments. But June also is a pilot. And he can take he's people. He, yeah, I mean, he's a hero, really. Right. I mean, he's got all sorts of things that he can do. So you've got <laughs> these two characters interacting with Ipe. Ipe, from the you know the best I can tell, Ipe is essentially the guy. Well, like you said, 
the comic relief. He's comic relief. And he sure. likes that. That That's actor likes that being the comic relief. Oh, but like, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the interview I read, which I'll link to in the show notes, like he talks about how he likes being funny and and so forth. But uh, anyway, Ipe seems to work for the company that June's plane is like stationed with or something. I don't know how that stuff works. I'm not a pilot. <laughs> Bet you couldn't tell that, listeners. <laughs> anyway, so those are our three main guys, and they basically work together. So they go on these little, little adventures together to figure out what is going on. Uh, Dr. Ichinotani rarely goes out with them. They usually kind of confer with him later on. Uh, and then you've got the editor of the – oh, it's actually not the Mayanichi News. It's the Shinpo Daily. Excuse me. Uh, but the Shinpo Daily editor is Yoshibumi Tajima. Or Yoshifumi Tajima, the guy who is the great entrepreneur in Mothra versus Godzilla or Godzilla versus the Thing. He's like my favorite, one of my favorite characters from that movie. <laughs> anyway, it's always good to see him. And I mean, these are guys from Toho. These are actors from Toho who came over to be part of this production. Um, so, barring, you know, any other stuff, let's talk about our very first episode Defeat Gomez. This is the construction site for the expressway between Tokyo and Osaka. Many people are working on it to finish it quickly. Now, I will tell you about what happened in this tunnel. When a construction crew unearths a large egg, the giant monster Gomez rises to destroy mankind. Motivated by an ancient prophecy, Jiri and Ipe try and hatch the egg to unleash Litra, the only creature capable of stopping Gomez. Who here had seen this episode before? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it's the episode one. It's sure. like, <laughs> it's the definition. It's what comes out and defines Ultra Q, for me, at least. Uh, so I guess the first thing I would ask is, in, in a sort of standard discussion style, what were your thoughts on this movie? Well, not so, movie, because it's not a movie. It's well, a TV show. <laughs> you failed that trick question. No, that was not a trick question. That was a... That was a correct answer, not a trick question. This is me not paying attention. <laughs> going off my, I'm like on going on autopilot. What did you guys think of this movie? <laughs> I mean, show. Anyway. Well, speaking of borrowing from Toho, mm. you know, I mean, the monster design, the monster suit is a Godzilla suit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. With, with some extra, you were calling them accessories, you know, a little extra yeah, yeah. padding on top, you know. So. Yeah, it's got like a little vest jumper on and a wig eyebrows. and some extra nails. Oh, those he got get it, got his nails done, girl. <laughs> he got his nails done. <laughs> but, his eyebrows are on fleek. Yeah, yeah. It it's, it's the, uh, it's either the Mosu Goji suit from 1964 or the Guido Goji, Mosu Goji suit from 1964 that they, modified by adding things on because they knew mm -hmm. super I knew he couldn't just have the Godzilla suit. He had to take it back and they had to use it for stuff. And they do actually use that 1964 suit. I believe a few more times, but more like at this point when the show aired, they had moved on to a different suit style. But anyway, yes, this is Really, it's one of the reasons I love Gomez so much is that it is a modified Godzilla suit. And as silly as it is to just like dress up another suit, I think the design is super awesome. Oh, I'm, I agree with you. One, yeah, 100%. I'm right yeah. there with you. Um, they, they could have easily just kind of thrown something, put a wig on it and call it good or, you know, funny glasses yeah. or whatever. But they, um, I would like to see that though, funny glasses <laughs> on Godzilla. 
<laughs> you know, Nike but, ad. <laughs> <laughs> we have seen it. That's right. <laughs> but it is its own thing. And uh, like, I've got a little Gomez figure at home. And I mean, he looks cool. He is cool. He is a Muppet. <laughs> he is Oscar the Grouch. You kept saying Oscar the Grouch and Cookie Monster. And I well, get that because th- those eyebrows yeah, really do look like floppy. Muppet eyebrows. Yeah. As I was saying earlier, like Mentad eyebrows. <laughs> if you don't know, that's about Dune. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think about the episode? I, I think it's a good start to the Ultra Q universe. Yeah. I mean, it gives us a kind of a laydown of like those quick three characters and that there's their scientist friend. And <laughs> was the he scientist the first one? For, yeah, I'm trying to figure Wait, out if the scientist the friend. One? See, this is the weird thing about some Japanese uh, shows, and I think Ultra Q follows it falls into this as well. It's you don't really get this like there's no backstory. Yeah, you don't get that. Um, there's a word I'm trying to remember right now. It's not coming to my head, but uh, basically, you don't get people building up those characters before you get introduced to them. You're just basically like, hello. Here's June. Here's you know. Here's this situation, and then they show up. You know, we're just kind of dropped right into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like when you were talking about with um, August, talking about the unbalanced aspects of Ultra Q's story, mm-hmm. that this is a really good introduction because it it starts off with talking about this particular tunnel and something is terrible is happening. So you know that something is amiss, and that you're automatically introduced into like a darkness. Mm. As opposed to like, like Ultraman being really like happy and upgoing, upbeat, and whatnot. But like Ultra Q has that like automatic feel of like something is awry, mm-hmm. and this is what we're gonna be. This is what we get to go into every time. <laughs> yeah, I lo- I really love that every episode starts out like narration, just about yeah. Yeah, almost every episode, almost every episode. <laughs> right, we'll get there, and then uh, you know it's got that Twilight Zone vibe. Yeah. You know? Yes, yes. I've seen this episode. I'm just going to go into, you know, my initial thoughts really. It's like I've seen this episode so many times that at this point I'm basically looking at all the fine details whenever I watch this particular episode. You know, Defeat Gomez was the very first episode I ever saw, which August actually showed me mm. way back in 1999, 2000 oh, wow. or whatever when I went and hung out with him in San Francisco. He was like, "Oh, you got to see this. This is Ultra Q." No subs, no nothing. He was just explaining to me what was going on. But it was really fun to, to check out something new and something different. And it stuck with me because eventually I started buying stuff from Japan and I had a region-free disc player. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start buying these Ultra Q DVDs. And so I've got like the first four or five of them over there that are really cool presentations. But man... I was just as lost watching them uh, because there were no subtitles. If the if I haven't mentioned this in the, in the episode already, sub the show just basically was ignored by fan subbers for decades and decades. Mm. Finally, we finally have something subtitled because it was a it was a long long drought of no ultra Q. No when love. I, I sat there, I knew how important the show is, and I'm like. Isn't someone going to pick up the ball here? Not yeah. even the film yet. I mean, that was 1990, right? Yeah, that I mean, but that's that's a key point too, right? Like so the film came out in 1990. If you haven't listened to that episode, <laughs> listen to us stumble around an episode with no subtitles or dub to it. Yeah. Uh that's uh yeah, I might have a link in the show notes to that one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's it's okay. I mean, the Ultra Q movie was interesting though, but it was, it was. completely different, you know. Anyway, uh 
for me, this this is like it's the building block of building blocks, you know, like the Ultra Q is the foundation, you know, is a cornerstone foundation mark for this tokusatsu stuff we love. And like this is the first episode. So this is, you know, one of the reasons I chose it. The other reason, another reason I should say, not the other reason, is that it's a got a giant monster in it, you know, and this is the kaiju cast. So I figured my episodes tonight for this episode that we're doing is they're all giant monster related. So uh, if you didn't know, Haruo Nakajima was inside of the Gomez suit. That's awesome. Also makes it, you know, special to me as long uh, in addition to the other monster we'll be talking about later. You know, overall, this is not the best episode on the roster. It's uh, it it's like one of those ones that like I think it had a better impact on me the first three or four times I watched it. And then the more I watch it, the more I'm like, yeah, you could tweak things a little bit, maybe make the story better. But overall, God, just such a fun episode. You said it may not be the best, but I think it's pretty special, though, because of that. It mm-hmm. is the first one, at least groundwork. Was this the first one to be released on television back in Japan? Do you yes. Know? The okay. original air date of this was the second, uh, was uh, January 2nd, 1966. Okay. Yeah. And so we're doing these, uh, for the listeners, we're doing these in broadcast order. But we what we have done is I asked these guys to pick two episodes each. Uh, I did the same. And then we sat down here and we watched one episode each so that we weren't watching things for three hours. And then uh, and then we're going to talk about these six episodes and how we like them. Three of them we watched here in the HQ, but uh, we have been watching them on our own as well. So uh, I think I've talked enough about this particular episode, at least for right now. There's a, you know, there's definitely people that I recognized from the extras and the, you know, small cast i recognize them from toho as well but like we said that just anybody who was already at toho probably just was like oh i can go over and shoot a quick scene from ultra q <laughs> like let's do it <laughs> i have to oh sorry no. i just wanted to say that i give an award out to the uh the kenny of this because <laughs> he was the least annoying kenny of all kaiju films Ta-da! Ta-da! Good job, dude. <laughs> Way to go. I like your glasses. Jiro, I think is Jiro. Yeah, anyway. yep. yeah. I I like the tale. I like that they. I like that there's something. It's not just prehistoric. Like it's a prehistoric phoenix or a prehistoric bird that's gonna fight <laughs> a prehistoric me. gopher. I mean, I. <laughs> it's just kind of cool, but it's a. I like how there's also like a a mystical element. Like they go to a shrine. And the shrine guy, you know, the shrine guy. The shrine. That is totally what his actual title is. Shrine, shrine guy. guy. I want that on a business card. <laughs> <laughs> That's my job. I'm the shrine, I'm the shrine guy. guy. Yeah. Anyway. What's up, y'all? So I'm guessing the priest <laughs> like, has, has this uh, this uh, cloth that shows Litra fighting Gomez. And that's what, you know, explains it to everybody. They're like, oh, we get it now. Now we know exactly what has to happen. They infer a lot from that piece of fabric, yeah. but that was uh, a that was a that was a that was a <laughs> like a grabbing an information like and putting it together moment. <laughs> that was that was a lot of stretch there. I, I could see this episode <laughs> fleshed out into a whole movie. You know, stretch it out into two and a half hours. Absolutely no problems in the scripting. I'm sure. Uh, 
Um, that kid that you mentioned, and that's what I was going to say too, is that uh, not only does this lay the groundwork for what kind of show it's going to be in terms of the three characters and the monsters and all that, we also get introduced to this little kid character. And as you and August talked about in that interview years ago, there are some episodes in this that are just about kid stuff. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. so we get a little bit of that as well to kind of know that, eh, you know, there's going to be a kid element. And fortunately, it wasn't overly annoying in this. Right. Yeah. Not just for adults. It might be a slightly family-friendly show. Right. <laughs> Good thing we were a family-friendly show, too. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I mean, I don't need to talk too much more about this episode. I mean, this episode is one of those ones that I will just keep going back to over and over again because, A, it's the first. B, it's got one of my favorite monsters in it just for fun. And, uh, yeah, like I said, sets the tone. Uh, let's go ahead and move along to our next episode. We are talking about episode five. Pegila is here. Antarctica is in the midst of a massive snowstorm. There are many unknown mysteries. Tonight, I will present to you a terrible event that happened at a base in Antarctica. While visiting the Japanese base at the South Pole, June learns of a staff member who disappeared three years earlier and left behind documents that mention a mysterious creature. June must find a way to defeat the monster when it attacks the base. There you go. That's a great breakdown of the episode, I think. <laughs> I mean, really? Um, and, and really, June's the only character of the three of the trio that yeah. appears in this. That's true. That's so, true. Yeah. So kind of. Right off the bat at the beginning of the series, we're learning that sometimes yeah. we're not going to have the three main. We're going to have just one or two doing something, which is, you know, kind of a nice kind of way to yeah, keep Yeah, brace things. it up. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I really like this episode because I really respond well to uh, stories that take place in an isolated location. Um, Lovecraft comes to mind in the Mountains of Madness, uh, but also the thing or the thing from another world, uh, both of those, yeah. that, that kind of isolated totally. Arctic location. Totally. And even though it's not Arctic, but something like Matongo, I also really respond well to where you're kind of trapped and you have to deal with the elements and the monsters and the interpersonal stuff going on, which there's not a lot of that here, except mm-hmm. for the guy with the magnificent beard that downplays everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you didn't see that that uh, snow cat flying up in the air. No, it was just an illusion. And, yeah. and, and he didn't see a monster. He hit his head on a crevasse. No, no. Yeah. Um, Crevasses were important. Grab, three, four times it comes up. <laughs> yeah. Three or four times. This guy had a thing about crevasses. Um, but I really like the, the idea of being isolated like that. And, you know, you're, you're kind of on your own. You have to fend for yourself. And I really enjoyed that aspect of this episode. The monster's cool. I like the monster quite a bit. <laughs> but <laughs> despite... The eyes kind of give me issues sometimes. Sure. Uh, But for me, what really is strong about this is what's sometimes the strongest things about some of the Godzilla movies that I like. The stories about the people dealing with everything going on really caught my attention as well. It's a really, this one's a big mystery too, right? Because like you've got that whole like, first up, you've got what is happening, (laughs) you know, what's happening around us. Why did the temperature drop to negative 90 you know, you've got a, the, another mystery of like what happened to this dude three years ago. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the the dog shows up. Yeah, and the, the dog. I mean, who's been, this lady? You know, the dog's been on its own for like three years. How did it survive? Well, that might be important, and that's the key to kind of getting rid of the monster. It's really interesting. And uh, at the same time, 
Are we not going to tell them how we got rid- how they got rid of the monster? We like, <laughs> spoiler. Well, I didn't know. I didn't. No, know. we can do it. We can do it. This okay. is fine. Okay. A lot of people it's don't have access to this show. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. So it's it's fine for us to. I mean, spoil it. It's not that big of a spoiler. I mean, yeah, but, true. Yeah. I mean, but, it's not what people are coming to the show for. So. Yeah, right. but anyway. So what I was saying is like this this show this particular episode introduces quite a few mysteries for you know what's happening here at this arctic base mm-hmm. you know and i i think that's what i love most about it it's it's that whole like uh we don't know what's happening we're gonna try and figure out what's happening and then you get the offshoots there of like ah, we gotta go out and get this guy oh we, this thing flew up in the air and then you know now they're sitting around a table <laughs> not <laughs> not listening to each other right and we were uncertain whether or not they were looking out a window or they were looking at a door like was, oh, yeah, yeah, was yeah. the attack was, happening yeah. outside of the facility or yeah. Yeah, I still I still think I like the idea that when <laughs> June and the doctor are sort of by themselves, you know, stalking one another, I guess you could say, and the the snow cat starts flying up in the air and you it cuts to Pegila. I wanted to say he's just outside. He's just creeping I'm, outside. I'm with that. Yeah. Yeah, the, the sense of location gets kind of ropey you, you don't really yeah. know who's doing what where when it comes to where the monster's at yeah uh, how open is this garage area can the monster actually see yeah. the thing and vice yeah. versa maybe it has a sunroof no hey yeah, there yeah. you go yeah, yeah why not because yeah. you know when it gets to n- negative 101 degrees that's what you want <laughs> yeah and we give these episodes i was going to say movies again we give these episodes a pretty wide pool to play in totally. you know because these are a they're shot in 1965 and shown in 1966 and i'm sure at the time this was like the pinnacle of television oh, you know yeah. i mean and they all shot on film and stuff like i loved hearing that even just going back and listening to the episode again with august like just hearing about this show and how it was made and how you know Subaraya just went full speed ahead with this thing and, you know, really just pushed boundaries. And that's uh, that's what he's known for, obviously. Uh, Well, I got a question for you. So, like, what would you say is the weakest aspect of of the Peggy episode? Well, I think I kind of mentioned a little bit. I mean, we can laugh about the eyes on the monster, but really the the sense of location, the the issue about where Peggy is, especially during that one scene where they're kind of in the garage. It just feels like it could have used a little bit more to kind of establish who's where and, and what's going on there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's my biggest issue. And the other thing is that it's too short, man. And I know it's a TV series and I know you have certain windows that you have to fill in terms of time. And you kind of said it earlier on your episode and, and I'm dead serious. This one I feel like could be expanded to a feature length film. There is a lot of stuff in here that I feel like could be unpacked and explored a little bit more. Oh, yeah. Like we could I would like to establish his powers. Like yeah. he obviously has the wind control and weather of some sort. Yeah. Um, Ability able- to control some kind of temperature rate. And then on top of that, having barometer. like psychic powers, whereas eyeballs light up and things float. <laughs> he can fly. We saw him fly at the beginning of the oh, end. That's right. Sort of. With the, the plume of black smoke yeah, flying around. Yeah. So, what, but what's that was that about? clouds, not smoke. Oh, uh, what? Right? A, yeah. I mean, <laughs> what, you never what, know what it is. Yeah, whatever that's about, you know, explore that. <laughs> right? I just want to know more about that. And and again, you can you have an opportunity for the drama amongst all the men there and the the one woman trying Bless to figure, her. yeah, Bless her. <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on. And yeah, you know, it could really be interesting. Now, granted, we've already got that movie kind of sort of with thing from another world and the thing, but still, it would be neat. 
I'm just going to say, if someone was to come out with a, uh, let's, let's shoot far ahead in the future and say 70th anniversary Ultra Q or 60th anniversary Ultra Q, I don't know where we are in the process, but basically, uh, oh, I think we're coming up on the 60th anniversary, right? Math is hard. Uh-huh. Everybody who <laughs> listens to the show always knows that I'm going to do the math right. No, uh, I think we're at the, well, if Godzilla's at his 65th, it must be the 53rd ep- mm. anniversary. 66 to, ni- to, to sorry, 66 to 2019. Okay. Anyway, maybe I'll edit that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, let's say at a, you know, a memorable anniversary down the road, mm. Tsuburaya Productions in Japan decides, let's relaunch Ultra Q, do it seriously. And maybe remake the episodes Ooh. from from the '60s, but instead of giving them just a half hour, they get an hour. Yeah, make it a, a prestige television show, like yeah. like the X Files or Twilight. You know, something nice and long and meaty, give you more to do. Yeah, give everybody more to do. Really yeah. build out those characters, because even though we got to see a fair amount of these characters in the episodes of the show, June, Yuriko, and Ipe, like. They could definitely. We could use way more episodes where they go out on their own too. Sure, you know. More exploratory information, I say. But yeah, that's what I'd like to see. Uh, Super Riot, get on that. <laughs> I mean, not not to be overly cynical, but I mean, for that to happen, you would have to have monsters in every episode so that they make toys of them. So true, you know, you'd, you'd true. have to go that route. But still, well, we we'll tra- we'll talk about it at the end as well. But yeah. there there have been spinoff shows and stuff without toys. I would say, okay. or sometimes with toys. Anyway, both. Uh, but yes, uh, moving right along, I say it's time for us to go to our next episode, and that is episode nine, The Baron Spider. A spider lurking in the night, it's feared to be the devil's messenger. This is the tale of a spider merging from the dark and savagely attacking humans. June and his friends get lost outside Tokyo and take shelter in an abandoned mansion, trapping themselves in a fight for their lives as a pair of massive spiders begins to hunt them. Well. (laughs) It's exciting. It's my favorite. (laughs) Why did I bring this in? Let's see. Um, I picked this episode because a couple reasons. I mean, it's a beautiful beautiful episode as far as like the shades of darkness and like the the where monsters are hidden kind of slightly out of everybody's sight mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which i was of course bragging during the episode during while we were watching it saying i would see that spider <laughs> because <laughs> i'm afraid of spiders okay like legit like legit afraid i um got bit by a brown recluse when i was a kid oh and Congratulations on still being here. Right? Well, I have scars. <laughs> Physical ones. Uh, <laughs> and, and emotional, I'm sure. <laughs> so, I mean, first off, that was the first reason why I picked it. It was just that I was, it was, it's such a, it's such a scary episode. Mm-hmm. It, to me, of all of the episodes, it's the most, like, truly horror moments but then it, they kind of downplay some of those in, in weird aspects. Okay. Like with music, makes it a little bit more kooky and, and spooky instead of spooky and dark. But that would have... be Kunio Miyauchi, who oh. is the composer for the... He was the composer for the entire series. Oh, okay. So that's like his style, like... Boom, 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 yes. Boom, boom, Very you know? like Scooby-Doo, 
had a, yeah. like, had a Scooby-Doo sound effects to it a little bit. It doesn't help the fact that one of the guys has like a little goatee too. This is true. You know? <laughs> Alistair Crawley. Zoink, Scoob! Oh. <laughs> oh. But there's just, it's just such a really cool, like dark and the story is so absurd. Like we're, our, we open up on our team riding on their cars and their friends are following them. No establishment of these friends. Or where they're going. Or where they're going. Or why they're going. And there, they're yeah. passing a lighthouse and they're like, oh, we're passing them. You know, it's misty and beautiful and dark. And then we stop our cars, get out, and we cut to Ipe and one of their friends. I'm sorry, I didn't memorize that dude's name. I don't think you he, need to memorize their He's, the he's unconscious names. most of the movie anyway, yeah. or the episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's Asking for water. So demanding. Right? Gosh. <laughs> 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 give him wine. You know, like you do. But opening to them, like, falling into the swamp. Now, mind you, we are on the outskirts of Tokyo. That's at least what the summarization says. We can yeah. we can assume that there are swamps outside of Tokyo. Sure. I'm sure. In the... Maybe. Uh, yeah never been don't i don't know <laughs> even better than that that there is a like a western victorian mansion in said swamp that's abandoned now that's the thing that strikes me as the most odd <laughs> it's you know? just a little so, out of place do you feel like that's part of the whole unbalanced storyline i feel like that's part of the whole mystery yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's the question that we're being asked during this is that this is the like why is this existing yes I okay. think so. Okay. I think I think that's a valid sure. ultra cue. Yeah. You know? If they had expanded it a little bit more, maybe they would have told us a little bit more about it, but that might take away from the effectiveness of it being there. Mm. You know, it's just kind of there and we don't know why and ooh, you know. Yeah. And the fact that June knows the story. What? Why? He why knows does the he ghost know story. everything? <laughs> this is the thing. Like, it's, it's more like a ghost story. You could exactly. actually probably in that, you know. I'm just going to continue my reimagined reboots from, you know, several years in the future now. You could do this as your hour-long program. Mm. Spend way more time building up, like, the camaraderie between your characters. And I'm not going to – I'm actually not going to do this I'm the okay. whole time. But, like, yeah. I, I really – I think that that's – this is another one that where they could actually dismantle the whole thing and rebuild it up like as a standard ghost story. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. like, I could see that. Even them like gathering around the fireplace. Yeah, like those. And that's elements. when June tells the story. Right. And that's when he stands in front. You know, I'm redoing it. Anyway, sure. Like June stands in front of the painting and say, like, Oh, this, this is the Baron Spider. You haven't heard of the Baron Spider? Well. Sit down and let me tell you the tale. You know, <laughs> I think I could, I just. I love the Ultra Q series so much. It's like when I love a Godzilla movie so much that I want it to be perfect. Sure. Yeah. I'm not saying it should be remade, but I'm just saying it could be remade. Yeah, you just <laughs> want more of right. it. Yeah, you want yeah, more yeah. of it. And yeah. and yeah. And that this episode for me was like that because it was so much like it felt like House on Haunted Hill. It had that kind of hammer-esque like horror darkness aspects, you know, the the spider webs everywhere. The giant spider, yeah, whatever. Terrifying. I mean, 
terrifying. And so fuzzy, you just want to hug right? it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> when it was climbing under the chair, we're all yeah. like, how's that going to get under there? <laughs> Little puppy, you can't fit under that couch. <laughs> yeah. Little eight-legged puppy. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like Harry Potter ones, just saying. Yeah. Not as scary, but you know. But, uh, I, but I scary in its own right. Yeah, yeah. It definitely has, it has fear and horror elements that are just very obvious in that tale. Oh, yeah. I love the spider webs. I absolutely adore. In the opening credits, even, we see yeah. the spider webs just kind of flowing across the screen. And then later on, we see them hitting the woman. And it just, they're creepy. It looks really good. Awesome monster moments there. I did not pay attention. Where did the webs come out of the spiders? Because, you know, in in Mothra, they come out of the mouth of Mothra, you know? (laughs) And then same thing for Kumanga. Yeah. But, like, where did the webs come out of these spiders? Uh, I think it was intended to be the mouth, but it looked like the shoulder. shoulder, (laughs) Not the butt. It's like, in 1966, we just didn't know that spiders produced webs out of their butts. We assumed it was from the mouth. That's taboo, man. (laughs) Oh, no. No way would that be taboo for Japan. (laughs) <laughs> no way. Anyway. But it was good and creepy wherever it came from. Yes. Great and great uh atmosphere oh, in yeah. this oh, episode. Yeah. Like I'd say this this one definitely has like you were saying like it's like the scariest one, you know. It definitely has that horror vibe way more than any of the other episodes of this show, for sure. And I have a beautiful Baron spider toy that glows in oh, the dark. Oh, it's so pretty. <laughs> All right, so want to say any final thoughts on this movie? I mean, this episode? (laughs) We're going to do that the whole time. Yeah. Um, No. Okay. I was just thinking if I hadn't hadn't covered anything. Okay. Yeah, no, we're good. All right, so we've each covered three episodes. It's time for us to move into our next episodes we're covering, and I believe the next one on the list is episode 15, Kanagan's Cocoon. With no opening narration. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, Every single one of these episodes, I feel like, has this awesome narrator talking about mysterious things. And I'm sitting here watching the Kanagan's Cocoon episode going, I'm ready to write this down. Where is it coming? When's it coming? And it's like 10 minutes into the episode, still no narration. 13 minutes in, I'm like, Gretchen, tell me if there's any narration. I got to pick up some boxes. (laughs) Anyway. A coin-spitting, cocoon-shaped object lures a boy inside it and transforms him into a creature with a craving for money. Pretty, oh, man. It's a decent <laughs> decent description of the episode. I swear, Kyle, I'm going to do an audio drama and I'm going to cast you in every role. Okay. <laughs> just, just <laughs> your voiceover. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Let's talk about Kanagan and his cocoon. I love this episode because it is just so bloody weird. It is just so bizarre. It has nothing to do with June and company. They're not there at all, which might be why there's no narration, I wonder. I wonder. Oh. You know, it, it could be its own standalone thing if need be, I suppose. That makes absolute sense. You know, um, which actually I wasn't thinking about until we were just talking about it. But yeah, <laughs> um, I'll take credit. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's it's about the kids. The kids are having this, this story happen to them and, and they're involved with the story. A group of kids – Almost kind of like an R gang vibe I was getting from them, like a little oh, okay. yeah, kind yeah, of vibe yeah. from them. Uh, and is that a scrapyard that they were, or, or a junkyard? Yeah, or junkyard. Where yeah, they yeah. Are? Uh, and they've got like this weird little swap meet thing going on. I don't understand all that. But so I'm just gonna step in for a second and do. say that I think what they're doing is they're replicating marketplaces okay. that, yeah. that adults 
so do. You so know what I mean? They're playing marketplace. They're playing totally. marketplace. Okay. But they're playing it in terms of like, you're, kids, really, you're going to pay me for this thing that I'm literally going to sell you, this piece of junk. And, you right. know, but they're all doing it with each other, you know? Okay. Until, you know. Well, the the guy in charge shows up. <laughs> they call the bearded man in the subtitles, but he doesn't have a beard and he's actually mustachioed. Uh, and there's two of them. And, Super uh, mustachioed. Yeah. Oh, like boy. Yeah. The, and not quite like the professor from, you know, the, the rest of the, the episodes. But no, this mustache is just. Yeah. And it's such this a. This is a where is the rent? I must have the rent <laughs> kind of mustache. Would you not agree? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they're having their, they're playing marketplace and these two guys show up with the bulldozer. These two guys are trying to run down the kids with their bulldozer. It's not like let's shoo them away. It's we're going to get them and we're going to flatten them. It, it's, it's not, I know, I, it's pretty over the yeah. top. <laughs> and I love it for that. It's just so. I think it's part of the comedic value, right? Yeah. You're stepping out of the reality sure. situation or a little bit of the, the cue, the question, yeah. <laughs> the ultra cue. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, so the <laughs> the curly cue mustache guy, I do not recognize, but his buddy uh-huh. that also, I guess, rides shotgun in the bulldozer. <laughs> that's the same actor, Masahari Nihei, who plays Ite or Ido in the Ultraman series, the comic relief character in the science. Oh, Patrol. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's so, really cool to see him in these. He's also in an episode, another childish episode that we're not going to really talk about, but I guess I'll probably say honorable mention grow turtle. He's yeah. one of the, the gangster guys in that episode. So it's like, again, he's playing these comedic characters, comedic roles. Uh, but yeah, Anyway, so diverging there from our, our normal talk, I just I had to bring up the other guy in the bulldozer. This is all prelude, though. The real story is about one of the kids playing Marketplace, and he gets home, and his parents tell him this story about or the, the legend of Kenagon. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Kenagon. The, the cautionary tale of the Kenagon. Don't yes. be too obsessed about money, yeah. or you'll turn into a monster that – and again – it's about the subtitling. I don't know how accurate the subtitling is, mm-hmm. but they reference mm-hmm. Godzilla here, which I thought was interesting. When they're describing what kind of gun looks like, they yeah. say you're going to get a big scaly tail or a warty tail or whatever, like Godzilla. And I thought that was a nice little kind of, I don't know if it was an intentional nod or Godzilla was just so part of the pop culture that, of course, it gets mentioned. I'm guessing that's the reason, yeah. Either way, it was kind of cool. They also say that uh, he's red like a coin, he's got a zipper mouth like a purse, and uh, his eyes are all bugged out because they're always looking for coins. And I thought it was a really neat description, especially knowing what the monster will eventually look like. Uh, The kid does grow this cocoon in his bedroom and it is giving out money to him. And he gets sucked into the cocoon. And again, another really bizarre transformation kind of thing happening here. It's just all over the map in terms of visuals. I love it. (laughs) It's so bizarre and wacky. Yeah. This one. And I love the, the, I love that it's more of like a kid episode, yeah. you know, it's like, it's so, it's like bizarre, just like Grow Turtle is bizarre. And it's, uh, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to just accept what's happening on mm-hmm. screen, you know? Sure. Yeah. Don't you guys feel like this also reflects a lot of like the horrors of childhood kind of thing? Like things that your parents tell you, like your face will stick like that and it does, or, you know, those kinds of terror tales for sure yeah yeah yeah. i mean as goofy as it is like thinking about i'm like this is actually really terrifying to think that you know i get too obsessed with money i'm gonna turn into this monster i you know i'm i'm not obsessed with money and i think this is why (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I just don't want to turn into a uh, a coin purse headed monster. Sure. Right. Now the Kanagon design is like really iconic now. Like uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm, I'm sure at some point we'll talk about in this episode, if it hasn't been brought up already, is that Ultra Q put I don't know four or five monsters into the spotlight, and they're still in some mode of spotlight even today. Mm. You know, Garamon was Pigmon, Kanagon is still. It's Conagon, really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Gomez is still showing up in Ultraman stuff today. I think Conagon has a weird longevity about it that I don't think I've really understood. And I don't know exactly how Conagon comes up in the future episodes of future series in the Ultra franchise, but it's good to see him still around. He's probably my favorite monster design from Ultra Q. Mm. Uh, I really enjoy how he looks, how he moves, uh, and the fact that he's got such longevity and he's not giant sized. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think that says a lot about it too. He never grows to Godzilla or Gomez or whatever size. I think he's Gretchen sized. He's, okay, he's Gretchen sized. <laughs> he's which, like five something. Which, no offense, isn't as terrifying as he. No, like a I giant know, Godzilla. I know, I'm short. I get it. <laughs> you, I'm six four. Short. Um, <laughs> but I, I love the design of this thing, and it's walking around town and. This is something you you had mentioned while we were watching the Ultra Q. We were all talking about how this is a world where monsters just kind of are. So as this monster, this kind of guy's walking down the street, nobody's screaming and freaking out. It's right. like, at one point they call him a sand a sandwich man? I don't even know what that is. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. He must be a sandwich man. Like, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe they think maybe he's like a mascot or something. Yeah. I don't know. Hey, old man, you must be. A- okay. Whatever, kids. Yeah. Uh, but I just love the look of him. Uh, you know, I've got a little vinyl figure of him at home that I meant to bring with me because he's so awesome. He's so, so cute. He's yeah. adorable. I, I like that, what you, uh, you know, that thing you just mentioned, that this is a world in which monsters exist. So, yeah, there's a monster, man-sized monster walking around the street. No need to call the Japanese Self-Defense Force. You know, we'll just make fun of him. You know, <laughs> We'll just taunt this creature we know nothing about. Uh, really? And then his buddies also kind of taunt him, but kind of exploit him, kind of help him, but kind of not. They run out of money. They're like, oh, okay, you're on your own. But I'm going to die. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Kids are mean, dude. Right. Yeah. I, I, uh, the horror of childhood. <laughs> horror of childhood, yeah, yes. Yeah. No, this whole thing where the the kids are doing their own thing and like living in their own kind of world that just yeah. like echoes what they think they feel adults do. I I love that mm-hmm. about this episode. Sure. Do you think that's why they were so mean to him? Maybe is that they were like doing again like adulting. You know the stuff that they were talking about was pretty adult. I would say you know they're mm. talking about giving him up to the government and right. oh yeah the government's gonna you know take his skin off and turn him into shoes and stuff like that was that was dark I was telling and Kanagon was like oh hell no <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here it's a darker story than I first when I first watched it I was like eh it's silly you know it's the kids it's cute and now it's looking- hard to keep it dark when Kanagon takes off like a rocket from well, the scrap yard into the and he's got such air. a cute voice bless yeah him. that's yeah. true that's true yeah. and you know the stuff with the parents the the one Father's got like a Hitler looking mustache, but the stuff with the parents. That was a, that was a fashion. You know, fine, <laughs> cool, whatever. But the stuff with the parents, how he's walking around the house before the parents really realize he's turned into a monster. And then the dad's reaction that, whoa, kind of exaggerated. <laughs> Super exaggerated. You know, and it, it's Comic just. relief, yeah. It, it's fun on that level, but then, yeah, you can definitely kind of dig into it and, and find. That way it didn't get too heavy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like this was like a later in the evening kind of show. Like, 
after dinner type thing that it doesn't feel like the type of show that people watched at like prime times. I feel like it's like for more of a kind of like when night gallery would come on when we were kids mm. that came on a, like after regular syndication. Sure. Right. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Kyle. Sorry. I'm, I'm actually looking something up because I believe you are right. And earlier in the episode, I'm sure I will talk about this, but basically this show was paired with another show. Hmm. Q- oh, Qtaro, the the ghost anime show. That's right. The Hour of Q or whatever. Uh, anyway, I'm sure this was on at like seven or eight o'clock at night or something like that. Yeah, kind of when like the younger kids have gone to bed and like you have your like more adult kids are finishing their uh, chores. Sure. Yeah. 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 Hallmark. Yeah, I would. Uh, I mean, man. First up, can I just say I would love to have seen this broadcast when it was aired that oh, would man. just be amazing yeah <laughs> like actually every time i go back to japan i almost turn the tv on and just leave it on all the time in case there's an ultraman episode or something that comes <laughs> on that just happened to be in the room when it ha- when it shows up only like a couple times have i seen any sort of tokusatsu stuff on tv in japan oh yeah it's unfortunate i wish it was playing all the time that's what I was led to believe as I was growing up. Dang. But yeah, uh, no, I would say, you know, this episode is one of, I mean, it's one of my favorites because I love the whole show, but like Tiger really loves Kanagon. Like, so Kanagon as a character spoke to Tiger less of like, Ooh, money and more about like, Oh, he's cool looking. So, I mean, that's another reason I'm sure why he's had such longevity as a Kaiju. And one other thing about this episode and, this is something that you brought up while we were watching these, that the subtitling may or may not be 100% accurate depending on who did the work. Mm-hmm. But the kids kind of sort of swear a little bit. Uh, not too oh, badly. Yeah. I mean, n- nothing that, you know, but yeah. did you, I mean. It's, a, yeah. it's also very different over in Japan. Yeah. Like they don't have, first up, I don't know everything about Japan to the listeners. I know that might not seem the case when I talk about it so much, but uh, I think that Japan does not have the same kind of standards and practices right. and that kind of even um, seeing kids say like, show or bakarayo, you know, like those are, those are insults and you take that ex- back, expletives sir. <laughs> that you could say in Japan, but I just, I'd never seen it. I have never seen that curbed anywhere really. Yeah. And you know, and I'm sure, you know, it was different there and all that. And, and some of it could just be, translation issues or whatever but i just thought it was interesting to see that there whereas in the rest of ultra q i don't think we see a lot of that with the other characters do we was the translation cussing just just a little i mean yeah, saying like stuff like uh, son of a bitch yeah see i don't know oh, and, you know, i didn't yeah. even notice so that somebody gets called a son of a bitch and it's like uh let's get the hell out of here or something like that yeah so, yeah which isn't awful i mean no, really. such i almost feel like it's phrasing. more like uh it that's more like the subtitlers and that's yeah. what yeah. i'm wondering but still it kind of stood out to me especially in an episode that's got so much weird stuff happening well in they it. were talking in a very adult language in right. general so right. it makes sense True. that they would have like they would use like more adult um, like conversations. It, <laughs> I think it would be cool if that was done on purpose, right? If like yeah. whoever was doing the subtitling is like, oh, these kids are acting like adults, so they shouldn't mm-hmm. be talking childishly. They should be speaking like adults, essentially. Or what they think adults yeah. sound like. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Just neat episode overall. Very cool. Very cool episode. I, yeah. A huge fan. Huge fan. All right. So <laughs> moving along to our next episode. Episode 18, The Rainbow's Egg. 
When the flower blooms, it's the sign of a calamity about to happen. This is the story of a white bamboo flower that blossomed. The monster Pagos goes on a rampage, attracted to a uranium capsule that local children believe holds the cure for an elderly woman's disability. Okay, let's talk about this episode. So first up, the reason I chose this episode, uh, like I said before, has a giant monster in it. This episode features Pagos, which, just like Godzilla, is a recycled kaiju. Mm. Gretchen, do you happen to know what Pagos was recycled from? Here, let me hold up the <laughs> the kaiju here so you can see. Any idea what monster this really? was originally was? I know. No way. Is it going to be... Okay, the back. Yeah, okay. Basically... They took his head off, though. Tsuburaya took the 1965 Baragon costume. Took Baragon's head off. Took his head off, and he became Pagos. So they only craft, like, a Pagos head and then just, wow. Yeah, literally his entire body is Baragon from stem to, well, oh, not stem, but from neck to stern. Right? <laughs> yeah. So basically, this was, like, the first successful redo right like that to me i mean no offense to gomez just say it <laughs> <laughs> that looks like a different monster it's a lot more successful yeah 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 yeah, yeah. uh and you know <laughs> gomez <laughs> actually you know what gomez gomezu and gomez yeah. are written the same way in japanese oh and, uh, uh. so if you look up gomez in yahoo japan auctions trying to find gomez stuff You'll find like Selena Gomez items and stuff like that. <laughs> anyway, different kind only, of monster. Different not monster. only did they do that to oh. create Pagos, they did the same treatment, took off the head, and in Ultraman, Naranga and Gabora both are basically this with a different head on. Wait, they took off Gabora's head? I didn't realize. Oh no. <laughs> wow. Good recycling. See, well, and they added like they added the uh, tail fins oh, for I that. Oh, I said uh, Gabora. Gab Pagos, Naranga, Gabora. And believe it or not, Magular here was also a recycled Baragon costume. No kidding. Yeah, this is actually way more stuff done to him. He looks a lot more like your corncob Godzilla there. Yeah, he does. Anyway. I like corncob Godzilla. Red King is an amazing. Red King's one of my favorites. He's like the tiny head, a big body. One body's. of my absolute favorites. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to mention that. That's, that's one of the reasons I chose this episode is because of the significance of the Baragon suit being turned into other monsters and Pagos was the first. Um, so... <laughs> You know, the cool thing about this episode to me is that it features a giant monster and it features a uranium shell that's been that's gone missing. But the the episode is still very kitty appropriate, you know, like these little kids are going out to find stuff. There's a huge um, emphasis on the flowering bamboo and what that means and how uh, you know, flowering bamboo is always accompanied by, a, you know, terrible things happening. World War One like happened that. when the when the I, I love it. Yeah. yeah. 
World War I happened and all these other negative things happened. And all of a sudden, the bamboo is flowering again. So something negative is going to happen. And that's when Pagos shows up. And, you know, the kids have their own interpretation of that. Mm. They think that they're going to be able to find this rainbow egg and heal their grandmother. Sorry, Grandma. That's a... That's I'm I'm wondering if that's like one of the failings I have of just not being Japanese. Like, is this a story that exists in Japanese lore? I was about that, to ask you. Because I don't know. Yeah. Do these are we using like because uh, I I'm uh, my knowledge short falls short as well. Um, I I feel like these are established uh, myths or scary stories. So in the Grow Turtle episode. When he wants to go to the, the the main character wants to go to the bottom of the sea and hang out with the princess there. Yeah, that's that's a that's famous, a moment. That's yeah. a famous Japanese tale. But I would not know. Tell you what, you look up Rainbow Egg in Google, and you do not get a lot of Ultra Q hits. Um, I'm guessing you get some <laughs> not good stuff hits. Nah, too. it's mostly it's mostly Easter stuff, really. You know, oh. Easter eggs. Oh yeah. Thank goodness, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, instead of instead of not good stuff <laughs> in the results. <laughs> well, that episode, and, and not to tell people to stop listening to this and go listen to an old episode, but that episode you did with August, he mentions that a lot of these stories they were told don't make them so Japanese because we want the Western audience right, to be able to dig right. it too. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah, I mean, it, it could just be something they made up out of whole cloth. I've never heard this bamboo thing. I've never heard the flowering bamboo signals. Oh, really? I've never heard that. But then. Yeah, it's yeah. like um, a lot of times there's any kind of like natural disaster. Sometimes they there's like a plant warning or whatnot. Sure, that's I, why that whole "I'm not Shyamalan" happening movie. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Oh wow! <laughs> anyway, right? We went there. I went there. I went there. But how do we take it back now? Griffin? How we take it back is that. <laughs> Segway it back I, to Ultra Q, quick. I got this. I got this. M. Night Shyamalan originally used, and I'm just kidding, I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> no, no, so, no, 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 no. Back to Pagos. Yeah. You've got the bamboo flowering, which signifies a disaster about to happen. You've got the golden rainbow, which somehow signifies this rainbow egg, and the combination of those two means that these kids can make a wish, I think, and the little girl wants to wish that her grandmother can walk again. Yeah. Don't you want to go picking strawberries with us, grandmother? Well, Aww. yeah, sure I do, but I'm crippled. But was she faking it the whole time? Like at the end of the episode, <laughs> she walks, which made me go, "Hang on a second. She was there something to this <laughs> mythical like story of the rainbow egg, or is she? It, she was like, oh, uh, this seems like the perfect opportunity for me to finally tell my family that I've been faking it this whole time. <laughs> Which is it, Gretchen? <laughs> I don't think she's faking it. Okay, fine. <laughs> you sure you don't want to come pick strawberry? No, I can't. Not at all. Yeah. That would be me. <laughs> uh, no, I can't. Yeah. But you go ahead. You go right ahead. <laughs> Don't let me stop you. <laughs> I want to see this episode in color so I can see the golden rainbow. You know what's weird is the golden rainbow, highly underwhelming in color. Really? <laughs> yeah. Aww. Oh, yeah. man. Shucks. Yeah, it's okay. Inside of the Pago suit, by the way, Haru Nakajima. No kidding. So I also chose the two episodes where he played the monster. Aww. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. You That's know. good. Foundations of tokusatsu here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... 
I don't know. This is another of those episodes. Like I really like it. It might not actually be one of my favorite episodes, you know, in terms of storytelling, <laughs> because I am like, why did she walk at the end? <laughs> Does it yeah. make sense? And I guess it. I guess it's magic. I'm just gonna say it's got to be magic. There. But it wasn't a real egg. It was a uranium. <laughs> like. The magic from the uranium. Uranium is oh, magic. Oh, dude, it was just radioactivity. That's it. <laughs> the radioactivity healed the grandmother. All right. Oh. Let's go ahead and move on to the next episode, the final episode we're speaking about this evening, and that would be episode 25, The Devil Child. Ladies and gentlemen, this accident scene wasn't created for a movie. It depicts a moment when balance is distorted in our everyday lives. For the next 30 minutes, your eyes will leave your body and your mind will be consumed with this mysterious time. A magician's ghostly act places a young girl in jeopardy when her body and soul split into two beings, one good and one evil, that roam the city in search of each other. That's probably the best description we've read. Agreed. That's yeah. like that's really accurate as to how this this episode plays out. I mean, I would say that you wouldn't even have to see the episode, but it's <laughs> but it's you just gotta a, see it's a great it. episode. You got to see it. It's so cool. There's so many things and I feel like so many directors saw this particular episode of Ultra Q and went, "Oh, yeah." Mm-hmm. Like I David Lynch, man, there's some Twin Peaks elements to it like with the stage magician and then like the transcendental aspects of uh, creating like a separate self mm-hmm. and like an id personality. Uh, there's just so much to draw on from this story. It's scary. And it's scary because you, if you look at this little kid who's on stage with her dad. Yes. And her dad's experimenting on her, essentially. I mean, for profit. That's not creepy at all. No, not at all, right? <laughs> and her id personality is very dark and mischievous. Yeah. Not super bad, so to speak, but just like kind of um, there's a, a yokai of children that uh, presents itself as a child. Okay. And I feel like that was kind of a, that kind of a nod to that. Oh, okay. Just because she had that eternal youth um, look to her, like when she was in her like like separate self. Yeah. I just kind of figured they were both like two parts of the same Well, totally. Coin. Sure. In a creepy, ghosty way. <laughs> Uh, the Devil Child, first up, title. A little on misleading. Point. But super cool. <laughs> yes. Like, whoa, the Devil Child. Like, what is that going to entail? Especially for our intrepid young reporters. Oh, yeah, the whole team's back together again for this episode. Yeah, yeah. And that's cool. We get to see them play out there. And especially our favorite scientist, Doctor, <laughs> with his... Like Japanese KFC facial hair. (laughs) (laughs) He is the colonel. Dr. Colonel. Dr. Colonel. Dr. Colonel, what do you think about this uh, devil child? In that dub that we heard, though, um, I feel like at least his voice was on par for Mm. what his character looked like. I really want to learn more about those dubs. I was, uh, God, guys, I was hoping in the uh, eight years since we originally covered the Ultra Q show on the Kaiju cast. Those dubs would have been released. Yeah. Slow going. Yeah. Slow going. Mm. Actually, at this point, they probably will never be released because Tsuburaya doesn't have the the rights 
to those dubs, at least the way that the Japanese companies like to have like right. yeah. those kinds of rights secured for them. You know, mm. they don't want to have anybody coming back and being like, uh, excuse me, my uncle was the guy who played Dr. Colonel. 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 Yeah, Dr. Colonel. Thank you. <laughs> I almost said Ishinose, but that's a different guy. Uh, they don't want somebody saying like, oh, my doctor played that or my uncle played that guy. You owe me money. Oh, I see. You know? that and that's that literally is like why Toho won't use any of the old AIP dubs, won't uh, commission any of that stuff if it if they already have their international version. Anyway, sorry. Please continue. Oh no, I mean it's just such a. I there's so many like spooky elements to this one too. I think a few. Um, there's a, some buzz online that I was reading as far as any Ultra Q buzz that a lot of people really like this particular episode because of how creepy it was, and I think it really um, encompasses that that question, mm-hmm. like what they're trying to get at as far as this is a weird different universe and i feel like each even though there's this even though this group is throughout each one and even though it's all set in the ultraverse i don't feel like they're supposed to like uh the episodes are not supposed to like work together at all yeah i don't think that it's very monster of the week there's not like a big overwhelming plot line there's only two episodes i think that are direct sequels to previous previous episodes and that's yeah. the garamon episode mm-hmm. and the pegila episode okay i believe i believe just going off the top of my head but for the most part you can watch them pretty much out of order it yeah. doesn't really yeah. it matter so much so, you yeah. know if you listen if you've heard that episode where i talked to august about it he said that there was somebody who created the shooting <laughs> right. schedule not the shooting schedule but like the episodes shot in order, uh, shooting order as opposed oh, to wow. broadcast order. Somebody created that list based off of Yuriko's hairstyle. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny because he mentioned that to me in 2010, right? And then that stuck with me, even when Ultra Q was released. And I was actually looking online. I was like, where did I read that information about the shooting order? And I went back and listened to the episode. I'm like, oh, right. August told me about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as soon as I heard that episode, though, uh, now that when I watch Ultra Q, mm-hmm. I always pay attention to her hair. I can't yeah. not look away from her hair. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting because, like, sometimes she has it in a hat. And so mm-hmm. it's completely, like, covered. Well, you can't really tell. Yeah, that way you should not know about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. <That's> awesome. <laughs> anyway. Well, I like the I like her as a character mm-hmm. um way better in this show <laughs> like than than Fuji? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Cuz Fuji, I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't like Fuji. She's very like frail. She's where, a, oh, Fuji's yeah. a little too yes, yes whatever you say team. Yes. And yeah. Yuriko definitely has she's like, like she's a bit of a badass. Yeah. She's like she sees something she doesn't like, she says it. She's like, "Hey, whoa, 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 whoa." Yeah. Don't talk to me like that, you know. And she's got initiative. I mean, if there's something that needs to be done, she she doesn't ask for permission a lot of the time. She just kind of does it. And and that's nice. Right. I really yeah. respond well to strong women anyway. And, well, totally I take that out of context or don't. <laughs> but I, I, you know what I mean. I mean, it's a strong female character. I know exactly what you mean, too. Yeah. Well, and look at her on Baron Spider. She, like, led everybody to out of the swamp. She let the, everybody out of the swamp. Right? Yeah. There's Come an on. episode. She's doing awesome. I love her as a yeah. character. I because I was basically binge watching Ultra Q all month, essentially. And there's an episode where two reporters at the 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 news desk where she works are like literally saying, like, oh, I don't know if I want to go on this story. And she just is like, Chief, put me on this now. Yeah. 
get get these other bozos out of here. Yeah. And then another time when the chief is like complimenting her and she does a really good Japanese job of uh, downplaying her own stuff and oh, saying like, yeah. oh, yeah, those two dudes probably would have had the same same story I did if they came with me. But whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love that at one point the little girl talks about waking up with blood on her hands. Right. Nice and creepy. There's some really creepy camera shots in this, especially at night with the vehicles driving on the road. Nice mm. canted angles and such. Really, really cool. Very Lost Highway, yes. right? Yes. Uh, let's see. I wrote Magician is Creepy AF in my notes. Because <laughs> um, he really is. <laughs> he really is, man. And uh, as the episode continues, like towards the end, our heroes are judging the heck out of the magician from the audience. Just uh, casting yeah. him some serious, like, come on, you know, it's just wonderful. Uh, and I love that the professor at one point says, bring this ultimate ultrasonic device. What is that? I don't know, but I want one. That was a device that he put um, Ipe into and he split Ipe, right? Right, but I want one. Oh. <laughs> I would also You're say. You're going to have to make that out of your own cardboard. Well, you could probably figure out how to do it by watching him because they have all sorts of crazy devices that they bring with them at the end of episodes every once in a Pretty while. Pretty much. Like Pretty the much. episode where the guy's in the, um, I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but where the dude turns real big and he's in the mountains. They think he's mm-hmm. the snowman or whatever. Yeah. You know, just at the end of the episode, all of a sudden this machine shows up and it's like, oh, you're going to shoot him with that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, even the Pegula episode, where'd the rocket launcher come from? Uh, all okay. of them have those. All those bases have those. Uh, apparently. You just have to be prepared. I, I right? guess so. That's what happens when you live in a world with monsters. Well, right. that's true. That's true. That's there true. you go. Um, <laughs> the only other thing that I wrote down here I wanted to ask you guys about, and again, this probably goes back to the subtitling. Before they identify that they're actually talking about uh, Lily's, I guess, negative self or whatever, they refer to the white girl doing something. And I, it took me a second to realize, okay, they're talking about her when she's out walking around doing her own thing, whatever. But it just kind of caught me out of, out of uh, kind of off guard, you know, mm. where they're talking about the white girl. I'm like, what, what, they're, what white yeah. girl? I'd have to watch it but again. That must be a subtitling thing. Though, too. There might be. So one of the things I was going to say about subtitling is like, it's the job of a subtitler to infer things, right? So like what we mentioned right. about the kids speaking a little more adult, maybe that was because they were speaking a little more adult and mm-hmm. that was the best way that they could sort of represent that to us Yanks, you know, reading this in English. Yeah. yeah. So it might, you know, that might be the, the job of somebody to go, oh, I guess we'll talk, we'll call her that. But I'd have to listen to what they're saying in Japanese. To, yeah, like if they say like, you know, the term, the color white, or if they're actually saying like... Well, I th- ultimately, I think that's what they're referring to is the color white. Oh. And, and it just, it took me a second to catch up to that moment. You know what the little girl's name though was, right? Lily. Lily, yeah. Oh, that's right. Oh, white Lily. Oh. Anyway, now that I've blown your minds, just kidding. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to, I mean, I, this show needs to be seen by more people. Yes. I think that maybe they're using the white, like the whole, um, like positive negative thing. Maybe. That's, I think that's what I'm thinking. Cause. Or maybe that she's just a ghost. Right. Ghost image. Who knows? Darn. We'll have to watch it again to find out. Yeah. Bummer. (laughs) (laughs) Or listeners should watch it and let you know. What they think. They should. In fact, you know, one of the things we talked about uh, is we did not poll the listeners like we do at a normal Daikaiju discussion to see 
you know, what everybody thought of all these episodes. But what I did ask the Kaiju core, our listeners on Facebook, mm-hmm. is to tell us what their favorite episodes, if they'd seen it, was. And so I thought I'd bring up the Kaiju core, find that post. You gave them all the episodes, right? I said, in preparation for the next episode, I'm binge watching the series again. And I want to know, have you seen the series? And if so, what's your favorite Ultra Q episode? And we got some you know, strong comments from people. I'd say overall, the one that came up that surprised me the most was people saying that they liked Challenge from the year 2020 really as one of their favorites. And it's not that that I wouldn't necessarily disagree about that. It's a no. it, that's the episode where people are disappearing, so it's really a big scary. Mystery. Yeah. And then Kemersajan shows up, you know, the alien. And he's the one who's taking it. It's scary people. in concept. It's not like actually like scary, but the, the yeah. Idea yeah. Is. there's some good stuff in it for sure. Yeah. So that's one of the ones that people said uh they really liked. Uh, I I think that is probably the highest you know highest voted i guess you'd say but people said baron spider uh let's see don said he liked the garamon episode the flying train episode that's the one uh oh no the flying train episode is this one that i'm wearing here right yeah the last episode of the series which i've always found to be very odd but yeah challenge from the year 2020 was picked by a few different people Baron Spider, Grow Little Turtle, the Conagon episode. So people really do like Ultra Q, especially if they've seen it. We just got to get more people to see this show. Yeah. So hopefully, because we know that recently, somewhat recently for this podcast recording, Subaraya was awarded a win in their court case against Sampo Sands. Yes. Finally. Yes. Yes. Uh, so we know this as fans. We know that that we're going to start seeing more stuff come out of Japan because I'm we so haven't excited. seen stuff. Oh, man. I, oh, boy. Unleash Ooh. the license. Unleash <laughs> the license. <laughs> Woo, it's going to be good. Yeah. Actually, um, I listened to an episode of a podcast. I think it's called The Fourth Wall where they talk with an American guy who's working with Subaraya on like licensing stuff. And it was really kind of fascinating to hear him talk about, like, the series Bible that they're creating, which is crazy to think about the entirety of the Ultra series being not condensed, but, you know, compressed (laughs) into one (laughs) series Bible that tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, right? It's going to have to be huge. Huge! Or, like, multiple issues, like, kind of like that Godzilla series. Like the one behind your head. Oh, yeah, yeah. The box sets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they'll have to do it like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's no not, that's way. Just, that's not for somebody to buy, unfortunately. I oh. would totally buy that. Yeah. Um, but it's for people who develop new ultra properties, right? Oh. So if somebody like... Uh, oh, man. <laughs> I don't know. Some c- book company comes in. They say, we want to write a book on Ultraman. Then this company provides them with the series Bible. So we just have to come up with our business idea of what we want to do so we can get a hold of that series Bible. Probably shouldn't have recorded that part of this in the episode, but anyway. Well, I'd say we should pitch like an audio drama, but they did a radio drama based on Ultra Q that, you know, back then. They did. I don't know if it's ever been. I've never heard it. Yeah, I've never heard it either. I don't know if it's ever been. uh, I don't know how they would do dubbing on that or something, but yeah, I don't know. One of the reasons why I want to learn Japanese is so I can understand some of this stuff. Well, I mean, they could probably do it like they do a like a script of it in English. Right. Like a, a transcript. Well, that's it. Maybe we pitch them that we want to license uh, their yeah. scripts and then we'll release them as an English translation. Ooh. 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 I'm liking that, actually. 
what if we uh, did an official redo of the Ultra Q radio drama? Oh, sign me up. But like yeah. an English version of it. That'd yes. be cool. Down right? with that. I am so down. All right. Well, then, uh, let's talk about the series as a whole a little okay. bit more. So, <laughs> uh, so obviously, we all think you should go out there and see this series. Uh, this show was originally just not available in America at all. And, um, ooh, I don't remember what year it came out. I'm going to say probably around 2012 or something like that, maybe 2013. This series was released on DVD by Shout Factory here in the United States. You can buy the 28 episode series on dvd and uh that was done with you know by shout factory using the materials from chayo hopefully with that win subaraya will release the original ultra q here in the united states with an english dub and with english subtitles because we all know that actually english dubs are important for new fans younger fans people who don't want to read and uh those people. And older fans. 2013. 2013. Okay, yeah. yeah. My hope is that we, in the next couple of months, hopefully not too far out, start to see these things popping up. Subaraya officially licensing Ultra Q for American distribution with insert awesome company. That's another part of it is like trying to get an awesome company to come in and see the value right. of Ultra Q. I got a bad feeling, you guys. So I feel like it's going to be Ultraman Toys all over the place and that ultra Q is going to not get the, the audience it really deserves. I mean, just to be like seriously reality about it. You mean, do you mean that you don't think ultra Q is going to get a release or you don't think people are going to pay attention? To ultra I don't Q? think, I don't think people are going to pay attention. Okay. I mean, just because they're, they're so, it seems like right now they're building fan base, um, forward going with anime and, manga mm -hmm. and i feel like those are the avenues they're trying to like get into it'd be really cool you know this would be a really good manga just saying like, oh ultra q yeah like an ultra q series manga like how spooky that would be and you know that i would feel be like cool. there that's what the ultraverse needs needs ultra q well because it was the origin for one but because it's it has such a dichotomy to the other stories. Mm -hmm. like, it's very different. Yeah. Like and, when people like actually there was a guy on the on the Facebook group that was like, oh, I, I want to see the original series first before I watch Ultra Q. It's like, oh, no, no. Technically, Ultra Q is the original series. It is. You know? Yeah. It's the building. It's the foundation. It's the building block. Say what you want about some of their 50 pack or 100 pack movie releases. But Mill Creek did a decent job with the Gamera and the Daimajin stuff. I mean. Have them do the Ultra Q stuff. That'd be great. I mm -hmm. mean, I I just want somebody who, let's just say it like this. I don't want a bare bones release where no. it's just the episodes. Yeah. And, you know, there's been all these, um, the th one of the things we covered in a recent-ish news episode are these ultra archive projects that are getting released. It's a little silly to think that somebody is going to pay $45 for a Blu-ray uh, right. Yeah. I, I get you. I'm I, on the same page. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, <laughs> so this $45 Blu-ray that really just covers one episode, but it's got all this in-depth stuff. I know, but it's know? one episode at a time and it's I only know. one episode but, so far. But all I'm saying is like these materials are being created in Japan today mm. for release today in Japan. A company that cares would say, oh, we can have more than just the episodes. Because I'm pretty sure Subaraya at this point would say, if you're making something for the United States, you have access to everything we have. Right. 
And there are American companies and, and personalities, like August, who's worked with a lot of these people mm-hmm. over there. So it's not like, you know, totally foreign territory for them. I would love to see somebody like August put together a ton of special features for a DVD or Blu-ray release. I would love to see that. So August, that's what you need to do, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, first there has to be. That, dude. Yeah, first we have a we have to find a distributor, right? But like you know, get give them some suggestions. You know, right? To talk to Subarai and say, oh, you know, Mill Creek is okay. Uh, Kraken releasing is okay. Stay away from Sony. You know, we're just just to be like, because there are going to be people that don't put anything on this. There's going to be somebody out there that's going to say. Oh yeah, I could put that on a DVD, real cheap, Blu-ray, real cheap, and not have any extra features. And I think that this series just deserves extra features. I think with the collector's market, you know, alone, mm-hmm. people would snatch this up. We are getting to the point where a lot of studios are like, well, you know, physical media is dead. Why bother? And it's all just going to go streaming anyway. But with a package like a, a Blu-ray, a prestige Blu-ray release uh, for this man, I, I know I'd snatch it up. I know everybody listening to this would probably snatch it up. Every single person yeah. must snatch up Ultra Q. Uh, so what did what are your thoughts on the whole series, Gretchen? Well, I love the series. I mean, this, for me, I, I like Ultraman, and there's a lot of things I love about Ultraman, the series, but this will always be my Ultra series that I'm all about. This and then what it leads into with Dark Fantasy and Neo Ultra Q. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So we mentioned earlier that... There's a movie that came out in 1990. Oh, yeah, just put that aside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Ultra Q was rebooted, relaunched as Ultra Q Dark Fantasy Yeah. in 2004 mm-hmm. with, oh, gosh, I don't remember how many episodes, but not all of them have been made so, available. Yeah. As <laughs> we know. learned, I think there's like 21 episodes or something. 21 episodes available now. I want to say that uh, there's like 29 or 31 or something like oh, that wow, altogether. really missed out. Yeah, but I mean, there's not much you can do except just watch the stuff unsubtitled. It's true. But yeah, Dark Fantasy is interesting. I always, because when we were talking to Chiaki Kunaka, he directed, wrote, excuse me, yeah. wrote two episodes of that show. And I don't dislike the show at all. It's a little weird. I think this one was much more late night is what he was saying. And he was yeah. also saying that not everybody in Japan could see it. So it was not a huge It was hit. like location locked or something like that. Like you could only see it in certain. Like the, um, just the big, big cities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I could see it being like X-Files. Yeah. I mean, it started later at night. It wasn't really like prime time when it first started. Right. Was it or was was X-Files prime time? I believe so. Wasn't it? Oh, okay. I, so I'm thinking, well, like you know, remember. like Tales from the Dark Side, right? Like so that came oh, yeah, on like, like at a, ten o'clock like at night. Yeah, yeah. I feel yeah. like that's what Dark this Fantasy. Was. It says right here on uh, Sci-Fi Japan. Another link I'll probably have in the show notes. It was aired at one a.m. Wow. So even later, it was like night flight for yeah. that generation. Wow. I mean, not really, but <laughs> <laughs> but still, I mean, the fact that they they brought in new people to do new Ultraman, oh, sorry, Ultra Q episodes as this Dark Fantasy series, I think, I don't want to say it proves the longevity of the Ultra Q franchise. Well, yeah, I mean, it does, like, because it goes into, it's, it, it was, took a, such a long break, and then it started, what, 2003, 2004, that's yeah, when yeah. Ultra Q Dark Fantasy came out? So, 
some there had to have been like there had to have been an interest at that point and that's the longevity of the franchise right sure but it's uh it's one of those things where i'm like ah, oh, it's too bad that it was on so late at night i'm sure i'm not sure that dark fantasy would necessarily garner new fans of the ultra q but, franchise as a whole yeah but ultra neo ultra q let's talk about neo ultra sorry q. <laughs> i was gonna I'm get the there next anyway <laughs> so, yeah Neo Ultra Q came out in 2013. Yeah. So, uh, whereas Dark Fantasy is a little rough around the edges, Neo Ultra Q, from what I've seen, is a highly polished tale. And actually, I would say Neo Ultra Q really has the feel of that original series. And it talks about online that says that it's the direct sequel second season to ultra mm. q so i can't i mean i know that there are those characters but i don't know if these are like the children of ipe and like yuriko or whatnot yeah i don't think but that I they're know actually they're, related i, but, I yeah. think they're i just know they're the same kind of jobs like there is a hero and there's a photographer and there's yeah. a spunky reporter you know like it has those elements that ultra q had in it that sure the investigative and dark types. fantasy kind of had a couple it of those does too, it has right? a like photographer those characters well, the girl who um, had the Garamond um, toy that um, was really alive. Yeah. Oh, so speaking of dark fantasy and toys, we mentioned uh, yeah. the whole toy tie-in thing sure. earlier. The uh, Garakyu up there, the little red-headed Garamond guy, <laughs> that's the only toy ever produced from that dark fantasy series. Wow. Not even the wash um, monster, like the laundry mat. One? Neo Ultra Q. That's okay. Dark Fantasy. My bad. Sorry. Sometimes I get them a little yeah, mixed up. Yeah, so Neo Ultra Q, as far as I know, not a single item has been produced for Neo Ultra Q. No, it's not a swag. Like, it's not that kind of series. Whereas, like, Ultraman is, like, toys, T-shirts, all that. I do not see anything oh, Ultra Q. No pens, yeah. nothing. Yeah, I feel like Ultra Q is, uh, you know, more respected that way, in a sense. Yeah. It didn't go down the the toy selling path. Well, one so, for kids, right? What's that? One for kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's less, but still, there's still monsters. Like Neo Ultra Q, I will say, it's a little dark, right? So, like the very yeah. first monster that you see in the very first episode is sort of this forest spirit thing, it's and it's like, dark. like as it's walking down the street, I cannot imagine that as a toy on my shelf. It's just black <laughs> like like nothing there's no definition there yeah. and, and then the other creatures that show up again i haven't seen as many of them but like all i can think of is the laundromat monster which <laughs> he would make a cute as hell toy he's but... like a kind of like a garamond but like rounder okay yeah so the only thing i've ever seen from neo ultra q is just the stuff that you can like buy dvds and so forth yeah it's i mean i know it's subtitled on like what was it, Toku? Toku has its subtitled, but I don't have Toku yet. I think I need to get Toku. Yeah, I'm very interested in seeing the the new series subtitled because I really like what I've seen so far. Agreed. Have you seen any of that stuff, Derek? I have not seen uh, any of it. I keep, I'm going to watch the, the Ultra Q Dark Fantasy. I've got that loaded up at home. Nice. I think I've got the first seven episodes and I found a fan sub of it. So I'll be diving into that. But it sounds like uh, maybe Neo Ultra Q is gonna be the way to go actually i think like that's where they attempt to reach new okay. ultra q fans okay and they're really well made oh, like yeah. 
I would say that the Neo Ultra Q episodes, like I mentioned, they have the same feel as the original series, but they're also very high production quality. Right. Like Dark Fantasy is like super video. Shot on video. Yeah, like that. Clearly, I mean, I guess now that I know for sure that show was broadcast at 1 a.m., it sort of feels like it was a show that was going to be broadcast at 1 a.m. I don't really have a problem with that. I mean... One of my favorite Ultraman is the one they did in Australia, and that feels like a 90s syndication <laughs> yeah. thing, you know? And, I, and yeah, I popped for the Blu-ray for it because I love it so much, but yeah, so I don't really have a problem with, with it looking that way, so I don't know. Yeah. I'll eventually watch it. I have so many things that I need to watch, and it's on my list. Word. I'll get back to you and let you know what I think when I see it. Right on. Sounds good. Uh, well, I think this is a great place for us to wrap our discussion, and I'll uh, figure out what the next thing I'm going to say is. <laughs> Derek, thanks for coming, man. It was awesome having the monster kid on. Yeah, that's yes, right, man. Um, good to see you. Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it. We got to, uh, since I'm here and uh, you're here, I want to thank you personally for being involved in a recent Monster Kid Radio event. You came on as one of our regional experts in the 2019 Monster Movie Madness, I think is what they're calling it. I say they because I don't do sports. I don't know any of this stuff. Uh, Steve Turek over at Monster Kid Radio, who calls himself my minion now. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that yet, but uh, he's running this tournament thing, and he brought you in as our West region uh, expert. And uh, I haven't listened to the episode yet, but I'm sure it's great. Uh, I'll edit it together and be putting that out here soon. Maybe even by the time this episode drops, it'll be available. So thank you for being involved with that. You're very welcome. Very welcome. I'm glad I could lend hopefully some credence to that uh to that premise of the monster madness but yeah it was uh it was a lot of fun it was about an hour long recording from what i understand so i haven't even listened to it yet but <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's great fingers uh, crossed and, and listeners can find that at monsterkidradio.net so just head over there and there you go do you have any other projects you're working on right now man i got so many projects i'm working on <laughs> Um, not to make it all about me, but yes, I do have a handful of things. I've got the plan nine by nine podcast coming up where we're looking at plan nine from outer space, nine minutes at a time. Uh, that was a very successful Kickstarter campaign that did, well, did very well and kind of blew my mind how well it did. So that those episodes will be dropping end of this month, beginning of next month. Uh, nine episodes in total, plus a few extra bonuses. So that's coming. Then of course, monster kid radio. And just this weekend, I released an ebook, uh, where people can read the adventures of a character that I call Mark Temple, Monster Hunter for Hire. Nice. Uh, so, so look up uh, Supernatural Solutions, uh, the Mark Temple case files on Amazon. Uh, it's an ebook right now. Like I said, you can see it on read it on your Kindle or your Kindle app. It's two ninety nine. Uh, five or six short stories in there. Modern day Monster Hunter stuff character that i've lived with in my head for over a decade now <laughs> finally awesome. getting his his due and uh yeah you can check that out as well and there is plenty more in the works awesome i'll have links in the show notes to all of those awesome things thanks man uh thank you again for being here it was awesome having you here to bounce ultra q ideas off i love ultra stuff now all things ultra you know even something like ultra Gate, which isn't you know the best i still watch it and i still love it you know and ultra q is right up there near the top of my faves killer gretchen thanks again for being part of this word always a pleasure to share the ultra q with you and the listeners i'm just really glad that people are gonna get to hear about this because i don't feel like it's super well known yeah it should definitely be a little more prevalent. So I know, the pie graph is like 
Godzilla fans is big. Yeah. And then Godzilla fans that know about Ultraman is a lot smaller. And then Ultraman to Godzilla fans that know about Ultra Q is even smaller. I get all those things. True. So true. I'm glad we get to do this episode. Talk about it. Direct people to it. I mean, right. even even if nothing else, even if you don't think like you like like X-Files mystery type stuff, there's some great model work in here. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the effects work, uh, the models, the monsters. You're missing out if you haven't seen it. It's all practical effects, folks. Yes. Yeah, it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. And what I would say is if you feel like you want to drop the money for the DVD set now, it is available. And I don't think it's like gone into the crazy high uh, Get secondary Amazon. collector's market garbage. No, um, I was However, about $36 right now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So what I would say, though, is hold off if you if you can hold off because i'm fairly positive that we're going to be getting you know these sort of like long awaited subaraya releases here in the states so that's what i would say to you guys but you know like i said if you just can't wait it is available from the shout factory and there you have it our coverage of ultra q big thanks to august ragoni and Derek cook for being part of this thanks to you guys for listening and of course thanks to gretchen for being my co-host as well a little bit of housekeeping to talk about real quick. If you have not checked it out, we have a really awesome 10th anniversary poster available. The art was done by Tom Whalen, and it's limited to 100 pieces. It is printed on a like nice paper, and these are nice posters, like screen-printed posters. They look mwah, beautiful. Some people were confused, thinking that I was going to bring these to G-Fest, and my plan is to not bring these to G-Fest. A, hopefully I will be sold out before G-Fest happens, and B, you don't want to walk around G-Fest with this poster. In fact, what you'd rather do is walk around G-Fest with that poster art on a t-shirt, which I will have a booth at G-Fest, where I will not be selling the posters, but I will be selling t-shirts. So make sure you find us at G-Fest. We'll have more information about that coming up in the coming months. But what I was mentioning is the t-shirts. We are going to be doing some t-shirt runs. So once again, please pay attention to your news feeds. I will be posting that stuff in the Kaiju Core Facebook group. If you have not joined the Kaiju Core Facebook group, check us out. There will be a link in the show notes, but there will also be a link on the right-hand side of kaijucast.com to the Kaiju Core Facebook group. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got a lot of editing to do here. So I will leave you with the Ultra Q theme song performed one last time i think we're going to be playing the garamones version i'm not sure if we've actually played that on the show before but it just seems apt since the three members of the garamones the kaiju that play the music are all ultra q kaiju garamon kanagon and kemmer thanks for listening everybody we will see you for the next episode next month jamata one, two, three,